Thanks for listening to coverage of the Society of Environmental Journalists Annual Conference 2019 in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks to all our members and supporters for making this possible. For more information on this and other sessions, look for the 2019 conference agenda at sej.org. Okay, so let's start this so that we don't run out of the limited time that we have. Uh, so um, the idea behind this session today was um, I've been a member of the board of directors of SCJ now for three years and have been a member for a very long time. And uh, I can say that there is one, one dimension of environmental journalism that could use a little more emphasis, and that is to help develop a vocabulary about how to cover these issues visually. That uh, I, I started my career in newspapers where the picture desk was in the corner of the newsroom and the stories were written, and then the written stories were brought to the corner of the newsroom, and we were told to go find some pictures for it. And so then, after that six-year period, I then spent 35 years at National Geographic deciding that I thought maybe visuals could be a central part of the narrative of how we covered environmental issues. And so the purpose of this session really is to just to begin to have a discussion with you about how to, how to perhaps think more expansively about the role of visuals in environmental journalism, how a visual narrative itself can be a central part of the reporting, could be, even be the defining part of the visual narrative. And so in service to this idea, I've I've engaged the work of three highly qualified uh, professional uh, journalists who use photography and visuals to animate and, visu and make vivid the environmental issues of our time. Uh, I've got uh, Morgan Heim, uh, Helen Richardson, and Peter Essek here. Uh, you can see their uh, identifications here. Um, and what we're going to do is uh, we're going to, I'm going to let each one of them uh, walk through briefly a pro uh, uh, some work, either a project or two. Uh, and then when that's done, I'm going to briefly talk a bit about uh, how to think about um, images that speak to climate change and, and also some potential ideas for stories as it relates to climate change and making them visual, some tools that you can go out of the room with. And then we'll have a discussion, and uh, I'm hoping the plan is to allocate at least half an hour to Q&A, and I hope you have lots of questions. And so the first person uh, is um, Morgan Heim. She's uh, from the International League of Conservation Photographers. She's from Astoria, Oregon. Welcome, Morgan. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. I hope you had a good lunch. Um, so I'm going to talk with you today about a long-running project that I've worked on for the last five years. Uh, I call it Trespass Country. You know, magazines call it different things. But um, this is a project that, that started completely independently when I first started. And... Everything that you're seeing here from the field really began with this enticing thing. Um, I, I have a science background. I, I worked, I have a degree in zoology and worked in fisheries ecology for years before moving into storytelling. And I couldn't quite shake that habit, so I would go through and peruse peer reviewed journal articles. And in 2012, I stumbled across this very en enticing title about anticoagulant rodenticides poisoning a creature in the forest. And the creature in the forest that it was poisoning that's so rare is called the Pacific Fisher. And their fishers are pretty common on the East Coast, but on the West Coast, they're, they're very rare. There's only a few thousand of them. And this one is from a population that only has about two or 300 in the High Sierras. And at the time was being considered for threatened status under the Endangered Species Act. Anyhow, uh, there was one kind of line in the article that described that the cause for this poisoning may come from 
cannabis operations happening on public lands. And these are not your mom and pop operations. They are drug cartels. And it turns out that um, the drug cartels are operating, uh, operating a multi-billion dollar industry on pu uh, public lands just in California and now in many states across the country. So I was immediately outraged. And then I thought, oh, that's something that someone else should work on. I'm not experienced enough or too scared. And so it wasn't until a couple years later when another study came out and I got upset all over again because the problem had gotten worse that I decided I would pursue a project. And I did my first trip just on my own and I'm just gonna flip through some photos. I'm not necessarily gonna explain them all. But I started by funding, self-funding a week-long trip out to work with a biologist. I happened to know someone who had been on one of the field crews and they connected me with a biologist and they said, yes, we've been waiting for someone to want to come out. So I spent about 10 days out there with them and gathered my first images and applied for a grant with the Society of Engi uh, for Environmental Journalists and was lucky enough to get one of those grants. And that grant um, enabled me to continue working on the project. And now five years later, I'm still working on the project. So this is from a grow down in El Dorado, not far from Sacramento. So I'm going out on the drug busts. I'm working with the researchers. I'm setting up camera traps out on grow sites. This is a black bear in a designated wilderness area that is protected for northern spotted owls. And um, the growers leave all their garbage out there, fertilizers, chemicals, things like that, and then wildlife comes in and rummages through all of it. This is Dr. Greta Wengert, and she's accompanied by law enforcement. She goes on the drug busts, and I, I blur faces sometimes in order to help protect the law enforcement officers. And she does environmental documentation of what's out there when they do the raids. And a big part of their work is to document what the impacts are, and come up with a plan for cleaning them up. It's so intense out there that we get Seaburn crews out there. Seaburn is chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear defense. <laughs> they're basically the domestic weapons of mass destruction team, and they're now going out there to try to uh, work with researchers to develop safer means for testing for what are very dangerous chemicals, neurotoxins, that are um, now existing in legacy level effects in the soils. And the Pacific fisher now is so exposed that even young, they've even found kits that are not born, have been exposed to these chemicals, as have the consumers, because these chemicals go into the plants and it's systemic and so you can't wash them off, you consume them when you consume the weed. Um, so th that's a northern spotted owl that is also impacted by these chemicals. And part of the story is also showcasing the solutions. So this is a former um, industrial grow site in the High Sierras that has been cleaned up. And all of the lights, those are electric tea lights. Don't worry, I'm not like lighting fires out in the California forests, uh, represent places where plants used to exist. And so the growers will grow the plants underneath the existing canopy. This led to a series of stories, the first of which was the biographic story about country drug wars. And I really have to credit Stephen Bedard, who's in the back of the room, for giving this project that platform because it really, really kick-started getting this on the international radar. And after it was there um, and syndicated to a few other places like High Country News and The Atlantic, it got into Newsweek and Discover magazine. Um, it got into Der Spiegel over in Germany. And uh, one of the ones I'm most excited about was we got a story in Playboy magazine, <laughs> which for me was really exciting because it's a different choir, you know, or it's beyond the choir, but still a very relevant group for this particular issue, in my opinion. Um, 
So as the project has evolved over the years is I'm trying to go beyond just shock and awe because I think what's really important with storytelling these days is to work on growing empathy and in trying to make people understand what it's like to walk in the shoes of the people who are experiencing these issues. And um, this is Dr. Greta Wengert again and her husband, Murad Gabriel, and their daughter, Silka. They run this institute, the Integral Ecology Research Center. And they are the ones that have, as a family, been conducting and leading the way on all of this research and reclamation work. And um, shortly after they published their studies, um, they have been attacked and uh, their lives threatened, yet they continue to do the work. Um, they live their lives largely on the road, and I want people to see them as a family, not just as activists or scientists. I want people to know that they are people. I call this, oops, I call this picture the, the dog that lived. This is Tasha. Um, so this is at Murad and Greta's house, and they had another dog named Nixo, and after they published their uh, study on the poisoning in 2014, um, unknown assailants broke came to their house and poisoned their dogs with the same toxins found at the grows, and Nixo died, Tasha lived. They also had their lab broken into. And they bring their daughter to work. So on the upper right is a plan for cleaning up a trespass oper grow operation, and their daughter Silka is helping to unpack new equipment. And they are important members of their community. So that's, that's where things are headed now, and many other stories have uh, kind of unearthed in the process of doing this, so I've got all sorts of new story leads, and I imagine I will be working on this still five years from now. Thank you very much. Thank you, Morgan. A compelling tes testament to, to what the investment of time can mean. It, does anybody, we'll take one question. Does anybody have one, is there one question that anybody would like to ask right now? Um, we can definitely get into that more uh, through the panel, but I am funded. I no longer consider myself an independent journalist on this endeavor. I, I've er earned a few other grants. I also received a Philip Hyde grant um, but now Murad and Greta are actually writing me into their research grants, so I am working with them directly to continue doing deep report, or not reporting, but using my journalism skills to help tell these stories. Okay, so our next uh, presenter is Helen Richardson of the Denver Post, who has been covering environmental issues here along the Front Range for many years, and she's going to talk to us about the work that she does and show us some of the projects that she's done. And do you have a little planner? Oh, thank you. Howdy, hi everyone. So, um, can you hear me? Doesn't feel like it's working. Um, I, I guess I didn't realize, I thought being on a panel we were just gonna talk and, and I didn't really prepare anything like Morgan did. Um, but I, we, I have worked with the Denver Post for um, many, many years and we're almost on the other side of environmental journalism where we're responding to the reaction or the, um, we're responding to the effects of it, right? And so for many years I've been covering wildfires, floods, um, and things like that, which to me are the effect of climate change. And so I just have a few photos. I didn't really prepare anything because I thought we were going to be chatting a little bit more. But um, I've covered a lot of the, I do a lot of wildfire coverage. And so is it uh, this way? Oh, here we go. Um, uh, I guess going way back to the Heyman fire was my first fire that I covered. Um, and this is last year's fire, the 416 fire. Um, I'll go kind of quickly. The biggest one, this is the, the Waldo Canyon fire. And what was really amazing about the Waldo Canyon fire is that was almost the beginning. We're so used to fires now, right? When look at Paradise last year, does every, I mean, here 20,000 structures burned, over 80 people lost their lives. And it still feels like it's just a blip on the radar. Um, with the Waldo Canyon fire, that was the first time that in Colorado that homes were lost. And the homes in the Waldo Canyon fire, these are homes that were in subdivisions. And people were like, we won't lose our home to a wildfire. And yet, this is, these are homes in a suburban subdivision in Colorado Springs. And so that was 2012. And that was really the reality of like, wow, we are seeing bigger fires, bigger fires, more dangerous fires. Um, 
everyone's affected by fires. Uh, the reason so many fires were lost in this fire is it was called, um, <clears throat> it was more home to home. So it came down, the fire came down over a ridge line. The homes that were near the fire, um, near the woods burned and then just went from house to house to house. Um, I think for s all of us, I mean, even as a journalist, yes, we get to cover this, but we're still in a little bit of shock as well. Like, oh my God, this is happening in our backyards and how are we prepared for this? And this could happen to me. I live in the mountains. I live in wildland interface and I'm always worried. The Cold Springs fire in Netherland, I was in Oregon and I, it came from a half a mile from my house. Um, <clears throat> so we're all sort of su subject to this. And I, I think with fires, um, you know, scarier and scarier. I think what I really love about what Morgan was talking about with environmental journalism, I'm covering the reaction and what's happening to it. But I like the idea of if you find something that you really are passionate about following that passion, because I see this and I get overwhelmed, right? We're all kind of overwhelmed with climate anxiety. I just read the other day, climate anxiety. We're all freaking out about it. What do we do? What do we do? It's overwhelming. Your feeds are full of it if that's what you're following, right? Um, and I definitely get more distressed every time I cover a fire. Um, this is the 416 fire because you get overwhelmed with the destruction that's left behind um, and the power of them. And uh, this is the Black Forest Fire in Colorado Springs. Same thing I was able to, I get into these fires. If you get into a fire in Colorado, you stay in because in Colorado, they do not give you access. You do not get access. People think, oh, you, why, you give your badge and you can walk in. It's the complete opposite. You have to sneak in, you have to have the gear, you have to you know, figure it out. And so this was, I got in and didn't leave for three days. Um, and I stayed on this uh, fire, but it, it definitely is overwhelming and then seeing the destruction. And what I think most bothers me is that how, and maybe it's a protective thing that we forget easily. Um, and it feels like it's more and more in our faces. And what do we do with that? What do we do with that? How do we, how do we move forward and feel good about what we're doing in the world? And I think that's the place that I'm in. I'm in a position where I can do stories on environmental issues, but I get overwhelmed and it's scary to see this. So I'm trying to figure out, you know, doing what Morgan is doing is where you find an issue, you push it through, you find the right people, and you, at the end, you're showing that there are answers. If you want to help, there are ways to help. Um, instead of getting overwhelmed by it all. And that's kind of where I am with environmental issues. Um, fires are, you know, are, are, are hard as well because they're coming. This is the fire, this is the Spring Creek fire. And this is crazy because it blew up. This does not look like a fire, but it's blowing up in the background that evening. And it blew up the next day. I think it was Paradise Valley and like a couple hundred homes burned that night. Of course, I couldn't get there because they wouldn't let me in. But um, <clears throat> and same thing, floods. This is the 2013 floods in, in uh and that was scary because, I mean, I live up the next canyon over, and as you're covering these events, you want to stay safe. I mean, there was an 80-year-old man who went and stood on the side of a thing like this, I think in Idaho Springs, and he fell in and he died. Situational awareness. If you're covering these things, make sure you stay safe. And uh, this was scary. I almost felt covering fires was less scary than covering floods because floods are so... Um, out of your control. You don't know if it might be beautiful where you are, but up the, up the canyon is raining and it could come washing down. And um, so you learn a lot kind of being on the, on the front, on the, I guess the front lines, that sounds kind of egocentric, but um, this was Jamestown and nobody had been into Jamestown for five days. Airlifts were coming in, getting the people out. I was the next canyon over, so I just biked in and I biked in at three o'clock in the morning to avoid the cops. And they were like, where did you come from? And like, where did, how did you get here? Here. And so that was kind of cool, too, being one of the first journalists to get in. Um, so realizing that you have the ability as journalists, if you have energy, the right people, the right ideas, follow through on that. Because as Morgan said, nobody else had done the story. You could do the story. And I think there's a lot of power. It doesn't matter if you're on a staff, if you're freelance, if, you're, um, if you have a good idea and you follow it through. It, it, other people will realize it's a good idea. Um, and that, I guess I'd like to empower people by that because it's easy to think, oh, I don't have an assignment or I don't have somebody who believes in me. If you believe in yourself, you're going to find the path to get your story told. And it's probably an important story um, if it's about the environment. Um, same thing, the destruction of water. I mean, this town, this was the downtown area of Jamestown. I'd never seen anything like this in my life. So it was, uh, you know, in the aftermath. Um, <clears throat> And so I, I think now, this was uh, Glen Haven, 
we're at a point where people have seen so many images, right? We're inundated with imagery nowadays. And uh, I'm trying to figure out how best do we talk to people and make a difference and have people see things in a different way. And for me, I think part of that is showing not only the bad destructive part of it, but also showing the good part of it what people are doing to make a difference. Even if it's a small difference, it's still a difference. And that's how I'm trying to speak to people, and uh, finding the good stories, because there are an awful lot of bad stories. Uh, I wish I'd sort of thought more about this. We did a story on the um, Rocky Mountain Arsenal, where they've introduced the black-footed ferret, and it's been incredibly successful. And, they, and, and they're actually now transporting the black-footed ferrets to places in Arizona. I'm like, oh, that's a good story. That's great. I'm like happy about that. So I encourage people to take on these environmental stories and show both sides and to give people hope because I feel like we're, we're, uh, there's, a lot of, there's not a lot of hope out there right now. Um, so that's what I'll leave it at. <laughs> Thank you, Helen. So our next presenter is Peter Essick. I've known Peter, I don't know now, for a quarter century. Uh, the first story that I worked on with Peter uh, was a story on non-point source water pollution. Think about that to try to make visual. <laughs> and the last one was on the long-term decline of snowpack in the western United States as seen through the lens of the California drought of the middle part of this decade. So Peter's here to show you some of his recent work, and then um, I'll show you a couple of things, and then we'll, we'll uh, have a brief discussion, and then open it up to you folks. Here you go, Peter. Thank you. Okay. Hello. Nice to be here. And uh, I'm just going to show you a couple quick stories, uh, what I've done the last couple years. Um, this one, I uh, got a grant from National Geographic Society. The nonprofit wing now gives grants, they call storytelling grants for journalists. So I had read about, um, called the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative, and it's $300 million a year that comes from the federal government and it was being proposed to be cut by 96%. And so I, I put in a proposal about that, and unfortunately it hasn't been cut, and a lot of the legislators in the area of the Great Lakes like it. And so, but this, what I, my idea was I've been flying a drone a lot, trying to learn how to fly better and better, and so I thought that this would be a good, good, um, tool for a story like this uh, and there's these areas of concern along the Great Lakes so the the story is kind of defined geographically but this is in Lake Erie this is a grain elevator that's no longer operational if you look real close there's a couple of wind turbines in the back uh, so they're sort of switching um, and this is on the St. Lawrence Seaway this is kind of the farthest to the east and this is where the chips come in and this turns out uh, well it's where all the development came in because of all the shipping but also a lot of the invasive species came in the ballast of the ships and I did these with a drone and I kind of have a hovering drone and sort of click 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 and you kind of stitch them together and make sort of a panoramics of these. Um, there was a <clears throat> Mohawk people that uh, still have uh, fish for sturgeon. Uh, it's obviously it's quite endangered in a lot of parts of the Great Lakes. And restoration. This is a theme that I've really tried to figure out ways to photograph from a visual perspective. Um, you know, we've done so much to change the environment. I think it's really important these people that are trying to restore, especially an ecosystem. So this was actually on a little island where it had all been uh, degraded and uh, actually they did the sand and gravel mining. So they put up these little fences to kind of catch the, uh, um, the soil and they're sort of like rebuilding a little island. This is out in the middle of the uh, Niagara River. And here's another kind of restoration project out in the Niagara River. They're kind of replanting the eelgrass. 
And this is in the Buffalo River. So part of my idea was to sort of just show, show things how they are. And, um, you know, it, these are sort of industrial areas. A lot of them, there's uh, been legacy pollution. Uh, sometimes it's called the brown agenda. It's sort of like you're cleaning up brownfields and places like that. That's a big part of what this story was about. Um, this was the place where 50 years ago the Cuyahoga River caught fire. And uh, it's seen as sort of the beginning of the environmental movement in the United States. Um, and the next next year, 1970, they started Earth Day. And you can see it's it's not exactly clean now, but there is a rowing, rowers, and uh, it's still industrial, but uh, it's much cleaner 50 years uh, out. And it's another uh, restoration project that's in the works. Uh, it's going to spend $72 million to uh, remove this dam in the next couple of years. It's on the Cuyahoga River. And moving over, this is over in Lake Erie. They have what they call these areas of concern, and this is part of the Maumee River by Toledo. And there's <clears throat> a nuclear power plant there, but often you'll have these zones around the power plants where they don't develop, and it turns out that that's, they're going to decommission the nuclear power plant, so that's going to be a, a good uh, wetlands that they can restore, right? Sort of right along the, uh, the bank of Lake Erie there. And this is a young hunter. Uh, it turns out Ducks Unlimited is kind of the big funder of a lot. They get a lot of the money from the federal government, and they do a lot of uh, restoration uh, this is called uh, Ottawa National Wildlife Refuge, right by Toledo. Um, cleanups, there's still a lot of uh, pollution. This is sort of the plastics. Uh, it's coming uh, on the Maumee River, uh, one of the tributaries to the Maumee River by Toledo. Um, this is what the... Uh, Traditional, or I guess you could say before development, it's called the uh, Oak Oaks and the Wet Prairie right outside of Toledo. So the Nature Conservancy bought this spot and they've been restoring it. Um, moving over to Detroit River, Zug Island, the U.S. Steel Plant, uh, and what a lot of the people like to do. Uh, fish for with a walleye. This is the Ford Motor Plant, uh, the Rouge River. So there's a, I went to about 15 of what they call areas of concern. And so this is the Rouge River. Um, this is where Henry Ford actually built these um, little canals so he could bring the steel up for his cars. And, and there's still, this is the place where they make the uh, Ford F-150s. And uh, it's kind of a difficult thing to try and show, but they use uh, tree swallows as a bioindicator because they kind of feed off the insects. And so a USGS survey was actually um, putting up these boxes for, and the, they would go down in the Rouge River and they take a blood sample, and then after they do restoration, hopefully the uh, chemicals content would go down. Uh, I thought this was sort of my initial uh, <clears throat> idea of what uh, sort of the Midwest Rust Belt was like, uh, but this is the U.S. steel plant, and it's called the Grand Calumet River uh, area of concern. Lake Michigan, and actually people do swim in, in the summertime uh, in Lake Michigan. This is right in uh, Gary, Indiana. And cleanup, again, trying to show people that are working on ecosystem restoration. And 
There's uh, Milwaukee, which is another sort of success story. They've done quite a bit of work. They had to dredge the whole river. That takes millions of dollars. Uh, but now they have a kind of a industrial area that they've sort of converted to lofts and restaurants in the historic downtown. So this is another um, story that I've been working on uh, the last few years. I, it's an old-growth forest in downtown Atlanta, where I live. And I ended up just through, I have, I'm represented by a photo gallery in Atlanta, and the, the man who owns the gallery happened to be on the board of this nature, uh, <clears throat> natural history museum, and he heard about that they were restoring this forest. So he gave a donation, a sort of a roundabout way that gave me a commission to do this story. So if you can find somebody like that, it's a, it's a good friend to have. But uh, anyway, this was where I first started flying a drone, because if you know it's been in any of the southern forests, you're kind of down in the canopy, and there's no big mountains like there is in Colorado. And so they're beautiful, the Piedmont Forest, which uh, sort of means the foothills, it's between 600 feet and 1,200 feet elevation. Uh, but you, don't, you need a drone or something to get up in the air to try to see that you're actually right in downtown Atlanta. Um, and this is what it looks like in the spring. What they did is they, they had a lot of problem with invasive species. So they, they were all a lot of ivy growing along the bottom. So I, I kind of did a little bit of that photography, but they really wanted me to try to show the beauty of the the forest after it was restored. And they, they opened it up to the public. It had been closed. Um, this is the native wildflowers, the blood roots. And, and I've done some <clears throat> multiple image pictures. We just yesterday, we sent the final files up to a printer up near Philadelphia. I'm going to go up there and look at the proofs and uh, the Natural History Museum has actually gave a donation to try it to do a sort of a coffee table book about this. So, um, uh, salamanders, it's, it's, it's a little small little creek, but it's actually one of the cleanest creeks in the United States because it's totally within the watershed. Anyway, it's the fall colors and a little bit of ice, you get, not too common in Atlanta anymore, once, once a year maybe. <laughs> and I did another one of these multiple images. I actually got kind of excited about photographing a lot in the winter time. With the, uh, and this was the drone in the winter time. The, you have the beech trees are the ones that keep their leaves. And that's the little creek. You can just step across it, basically. Uh, green frog. And as you can see, this was sort of a visual way I was trying to get to show that you have a little bit of the lights of the city that sort of blend in on the edge. And that's it. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Don't go away. So um, I'm going to ask you, uh, Peter. So how did how did it come to be that you wanted to do that project on the Great Lakes, and then f from that, how did you know where to go? How did that all? How did that process all unfold? Where where did how did how did you? <clears throat> yeah. It started with a, a news article that this Great Lakes Restoration Initiative was being threat threatened to all the funding being cut off by the current administration. So I thought that that was kind of a good sort of news angle to a story that was also um, a really good story because it had been going on since about, um, well, they did the initial, initial groundwork maybe in the 1950s and 60s, but it was really in the last... Uh, five or six years where they'd actually been spending this $300 million a year. Uh, as far as knowing where to go, it was sort of defined. They, uh, 
United States and Canada designated what they call areas of concern, and they're Usually there were the major rivers that flow into the Great Lakes. If you noticed, I didn't actually photograph any of the actual lakes. There were sort of the, the areas that were leading into it. So that was kind of defined for me. So I tried to take all the pictures that were just in, the, in that areas of concern. It's open to the public now. It is open to the public now. It's a long story, but a, a, a woman lived on this forest in 1930s, and she was a visionary way ahead of her time and decided she wanted to save this to be a classroom in the woods for the future. So, uh, so she uh, eventually opened, they opened it up after they did this restoration work. And what's the name of the book and where might it be purchased? What's the, what, I'm sorry? What's the name and where might it be purchased? The book? The book. It's called Fernbank Forest, and it's going to be published by Fall Line Press uh, out of Atlanta. I found a local Atlanta sort of art book publisher to publish it. Oh. All right, great, Peter, thanks. So now I'm gonna try something here. I wanna ask all of you, so how many of you are uh, writers who are wanting to take better pictures with your stories? How many of you are photographers or aspiring photographers? Uh, how many of you are, say, editors who are wanting to elevate the role of images in, in your publication? Okay, how about anybody else? You got any? What, documentary filmmaker? Great, okay. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna run very briefly through a couple of things and then we're gonna, I'm gonna ask a couple more questions to, of the panel and then we'll, we'll open it up. So um, this pro these ideas are probably more relevant to editors uh, and writers and those of you who are perhaps helming publications and these these ideas come from an organization called climatevisuals.org, and it's, an, it's a British organization that is a subset of uh, uh, an NGO called uh, Climate Outreach. And Climate Outreach is, a, is an organization that has uh, begun to work with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change about this idea of how to, be, how to produce more effective messaging on the issue of climate change. And Climate Visuals is the only organization in the world that's been trying to actually elevate the level of research evidence-based climate change photography. And they have, a, they have a website that's useful and informative for you if you're trying to make better decisions about what are appropriate images for climate change. Yes, sir? No, it's, a, it's more like a clearinghouse, and what you will see is that they actually then, I, I will get into this and I will show you that they, so what they have done is that they have partnered with a whole, with several agencies uh, to develop a library of images that are available uh, either through license or Creative Commons, uh, and, and what they're doing is that they're using research to help um, uh, determine what are um, appropriate kinds of images that don't perpetuate stereotypes about, you know, polar bears on vanishing icebergs. We we need to move beyond those kinds of things, right? So, and so they have libraries on solutions, impacts, and causes, and so. Uh, uh, you can go in and sort based on theme, uh, different collections. There's different agencies that have material there, and you can also base, search based on licensing. And there are seven principles that they have come up with based on academic research. Uh, this picture that they are using, actually, is a picture that Peter Essick took for a project that he and I worked on in 2004. It was um, called Global Warning of um, Bulletins from a Warming World that was published in September of 2004 in the Geographic. And so these seven principles, I've just put it up here so you can see it. I think the best thing probably is for you to just go to their website. You can download this material, but it's like show local climate impacts, show real people, 
show emotionally powerful impacts, tell new stories, find fresh ways of telling stories, be careful with protest imagery. That's probably the least effective kind of imagery that you can use. Show climate causes at scale, and also understand who, you're, who is your audience and who you're trying to talk to. So here, for example, climate causes at scale. This is actually from their library. It was by EcoFlight, hydraulic fracturing in Wyoming. It shows magnitude, you see. It's showing scale. And what you're trying to do is to try to help people understand the magnitude. Or here, this was after 51 inches of rain fell near Houston two years ago during one of the hurricanes. So what you're doing is you're seeing impact at scale. That's what it's about. It's, it's not just something small. It's also happening on a large scale. Get personal. This actually was a picture that I found that was taken by the Texas National Guard. So if you're and showing real pictures, not staged pictures, uh, this picture was actually about solutions. This was a, a, a she was installing a solar panel. This was on a uh, I think it was on a community Wi-Fi setup. So it's a way to get to the idea that we're moving to different ways of energy supply. But uh, protest images, even though they might be good, are not necessarily the issue at hand, really, is they're not helping people understand the cause why people are protesting. And you're probably better off as a journalist or as a, as a photographer or as a commissioning editor to go, instead of saying, oh, well, they're protesting about this, actually then think about, well, what are the reasons that are driving people to do this? Whether in this case it was a gas pipeline. See, then you're going to have more effective images. Uh, this thing, so I give this to you if you don't know about it. I think it's one of the more, more effective uh, vehicles for helping people think about what are positive outcomes, what can be done to improve, um, uh, uh, to cut climate change. This project was started several years ago by Paul Hawken, and it's now an organization that uh, drawdown.org. There's a book available. Everything is on their website. And what I what I did was I took the um, I took the top. What they did is they stack ranked the top 100 solutions to climate change in terms of efficacy or the greatest benefit for the least amount of societal in uh, cost or investment. So, um, does anybody know what the number one solution is? Roger says population. Plant trees. Plant trees. Yeah. What? Use less or eat less? What? Use less. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Educating women and girls throughout the world. Anybody else? What? Transportation. One more. What? Discussion? Okay, so good, thank you. Would you believe that the number one uh, is managing refrigerants? These are the top 11 and I'm gonna quickly run through them and then we'll get back to, we'll have discussion. Why managing refrigerants? Because in a warming world, more people want to have air conditioning, and if you have, if you have more air conditioners being powered by uh, coal-fired power plants, the world's going to get warmer, and you're going to need even more air conditioners. So the best thing you can do is to keep the refrigerants that are keeping the air conditioners allow uh, cool, allowing them to work to keep them from leaking into the environment is actually one of the most effective things you can do because the, the refrigerants and air conditioners are actually much more powerful greenhouse gases than CO2 or methane. Number two, onshore wind turbines. And so what I did is I went through and I was looking, how can I make these visuals? What, what could we, it's not that I pointed a camera at it, but I pointed my mind and my imagination at the ideas, and then I actually went to see if I could find images, see? Reducing food waste. A lot of the things you folks have talked about are in this. More plant diets, eating lower on the food chain, right? So I'm looking for, I mean this, you know, about seeing environmentally, in, we can commission projects, but we also can imagine more effectively about, uh, about gosh, what kinds of images can we, can we um, 
connect to that are going to more effectively and emo uh, tell these stories in a visual way and also engage with people emotionally. Saving tropical forests because they soak up carbon. Educating girls, number six, and family planning, number seven, they actually go hand in hand. Very important. Solar farms, number eight. Nine, silvopasture. These are all actually, silvopasture is actually the combination of pasture and, and sort of agroforestry that you can combine the two as a way to, if you are in a situation where you have grazing animals, you can, you can graze the animals, but also the trees are soaking up carbon. Rooftop solar, and the last one is regenerative agriculture. So there's 89 more of them, and I think for those of you who are editors or writers thinking about story ideas, that this is a very effective uh, resource for you to think about, oh gosh, uh, all the news about climate is such doom and gloom. How can I f uh, imagine or frame up stories that might help people realize that there's a, a positive outcome to all this? So from that, there's the links in case you haven't written them down. And so I'm now I'm going to transition back and we're going to start have, having a discussion and Q&A as long as the time allows. Thank you. So why don't my August panelists come join me. All right, so I'm gonna so I'm gonna run I'm gonna do just one question because we're running short on time. So I'm gonna ask you this. So so each of you are professional photographers who's your you in your life you you've made the decision about how that you want to take environmental issues and make them vivid and visual. So I'm I'm a neophyte. I have no idea what I'm doing. Maybe I'm a maybe I'm a writer who really wants to up the game on on uh, my photography. Maybe I'm an editor who wants to elevate the the quality of the images in my publication. And I've and I've come to you and I say, so give me something that I can grasp onto. What is there something that you could tell me so that my I could as as professional photographers and image makers, what advice would you have for me? Where would my step one be? So I'll say by trusting your instinct. Use the microphone, oh. please. Um, uh, trusting your instincts. I think it's easy to think because you're not, uh, I don't know, a top writer or a top photographer that you might not be the best person to do it. But I think if you have a good story, many other people will think it's a good story, and trusting yourself. And sometimes you might be in the best spot that somebody else might not have access to. So I think that's a big one. I think... Um, well, a lot of you, if you're writers, you're already thinking narratively, right? So you're thinking about how to craft kind of pictures through words. And so you can do the same thing, but applying it more towards a, a deeper visual story. And I, I would say use that, whatever that fact is or that, that trigger point is, that's your jumping off point for then saying, okay, well, there's this crazy fact that I just heard about. I don't want to make my story about explaining that fact. I want to go see how that fact is impacting someone's real life um, or species in, in reality. And so it would be combining that trigger point to find a personal story. I really love that in the seven um, different critical approaches to storytelling, as well as then giving yourself time. Because for the visuals, you need time. You can't go in for a day or two and really come out with an in-depth or even very um, cohesive story. It just takes time. Yeah, I, <clears throat> I, I agree with both of those, definitely. But uh, I would give. If I had to give one sort of practical thing that I've, I've just noticed, and uh, if you're a writer, uh, I've seen some writers that do this, just use one of those little handheld Ronins on their phone, and I, it seems to me to get the most bang for the buck as far as if you want to tell stories. Um, I, I, I went to one presentation of a New York Times uh, reporter who did everything 
one person with basically the phone held the microphone here and was able to tell a lot of stories visually and getting the audio and text and everything for a very small investment, you know, so that's, but I, I definitely want to agree with a lot of the, a lot of it comes down to your passion uh, for your story and your energy to go out and just do it. Uh, that's probably the most important part. So when you're working a project, how do you know where to go to point a camera? How does how does that process unfold when you're when you're sort of thinking through and planning? How do you identify situations that that may be potential scenes for you? Um, I on these environmental stories, I would start to do some research, and usually it would be if you it's a real science heavy type story, you're going to be looking at a lot of science and nature articles. And sometimes you can email or call the scientists and ask them a lot of questions about what they're doing and try to see if something sort of clicks then as far as if they're going to be out in the field. Um, but when you've done a lot of initial research ahead of time, I found that when you actually go out in the field, sometimes then the, the visual things will, will pop, pop out into your mind because you have that the background research, and you might not have seen that if you hadn't done that research ahead of time. Um, I, I would also say looking for action. So uh, unlike with, with writing where you can kind of recreate past actions, you can't do that with the photography, so you need to find out what's happening now and then use that to identify you know, I want to go to this place, and then um, you look for those moments once you're there that is sort of like that dynamic moment, that thing that's going to most grab people or make people curious about the bigger picture of what's going on in that situation. And um, just like one little example was I, I recently assisted on a magazine assignment for National Geographic about the Great Lakes, and it's, it's kind of a broad-reaching story about uh, the changing environment of the Great Lakes, but I ended up uh, just through a conversation with a scientist, you follow leads and you heard mention of like Chicago dealing with water, you know, increased water flow issues and this thing called the sanitary canal, which like redirected um, the rivers, uh, water to the Mississippi River and uh, they're having this huge construction project. So I was able to call up that water treatment plant and within a day we got in there and we were 300 feet underground photographing the engineering teams that were building new tunnel systems for Chicago to manage the floodwaters. So you just follow those leads and look for the action and that sense of uh, this is the present time of, of this issue that's happening. I think that's a great point. <clears throat> I also think a biggest thing is being prepared. Um, if you guys get sent out to do interesting stories, is making sure you have the equipment that you need, and whether that be the the camera gear you need, you know, making sure you have a wide variety of lenses, but also to protect yourself, making sure if you're going to be in floods that you have boots and waders, that you have food, that you have water in the back of your car, you have food for a couple of days, um, just being prepared uh, so you can stay. If you guys are in a place where you don't want to leave make sure you don't have to leave. And even coming down to little things, like if you're out covering a fire and you have a flat tire, do you know how to change your tire? Like just being prepared in that sense, very basic, but having what you need so you don't get taken away from the story that you're working on. So that's a big one for me. Uh, so one last thing before questions. So um, uh, I'll, I'll give you a quote from the American environmental photographer, Robert Adams, who uh, grew up along the front range and watched what happened to to uh, these communities, uh, Rocky Flats came in, suburbia came in. He was uh, one of the first to document what, what was happening to, to, with development along the Front Range. And he said that um, the job of the photographer, in my view, is not to catalog indisputable fact, but to be coherent about intuition and hope. That does not mean you are not concerned with the truth. 
And so I think that that's something to think about because we're not, images really are not here just to confirm what you have in words. They actually have a tremendously uh, relevant power in journalism and communication today. When you think about mass media and you think about social media, uh, television, social media, what is Facebook but nothing other than a, than a uh, besides uh, political memes it's a uh, it's a photo it's a photo gallery of people's lives and and f photography has a tremendous power at being able to connect emotionally to your audiences and as you can up the game I think it will make all of your journalism um, more effective and with that uh, we have some time for Q&A uh, I am supposed to tell you that SEJ mem members first <laughs> And I will repeat your questions. Okay, so the question is about taking, photographing vulnerable people in vulnerable uh, communities. So in, in general, my approach is I build relationships with the people that I'm photographing, so I develop a lot of trust. And that may be one of the advantages I have being a freelance photojournalist because I'm not on a 24-hour newspaper deadline. But... You know, like Murad and Greta, they their family's been attacked, and and they gave birth to Silka just a few weeks after that that attack happened, and um, but they have made the decision that they want to be very visible in what they are doing, um, and so that is a conversation that I've had with them, and and they have said that they are they are okay with that, um, and on like a kind of more, I guess event-based thing where you may not have relationships. Um, I think that, you know, there are certain times where people probably expect that their photo could be taken, that they're not really paying that much attention to the photographers because they're in the middle of a disaster. But if you do have the, the chance after you, even if you've taken a few photos first to then go over and, and just talk with the people, engage with them, be curious and interested about what they're going through, that's going to help you go a long way with being able to continue to take photos and use the ones that, that you took. I was going to add also that um, <clears throat> when you're covering breaking news and your situations where people are in chaos, um, it, it's hard to sometimes get those relationships because you're kind of in and out as a newspaper journalist. Um, and I just, uh, it's, it's a tricky situation. And I go back and forth between feeling like I'm taking advantage of people. And um, particularly in communities of color, there is a big backlash now um, where people, if you're not of that community, people are saying, what right do you have to be in that community? Which is a really interesting concept because as a journalist, you can't be of every color of every community that you're covering. And I've had a lot of conversations about this. And I think the best thing to realize is that if you're covering a story, you have to, your job is to cover that story. It's not, and by covering the story, you are telling the story of those people. You're not there to um, take their woes away. Of course, that's what you would like to do. You'd like to, like to make things better for them. But I really believe if you approach it in a way that you're of con concern, you're respectful, but you still you still have to get the photo or the story. You can't personalize it so much that you're, you're incapable of doing that, incapable of doing that. And I, I struggle with that because you do feel like you're taking advantage of people. But you're there to tell that story, and you are the one who has to be there to do that. So it's um, it's it's a fine line. Um, but and I think the bottom line is being respectful, but also realizing that you have to tell the story as well. So. Okay. Next. Yes, ma'am. So the question is about ethical considerations in in photographing climate change. When you say editing, though, what does that mean? You mean in toning and and. So the question is on post-production of images when covering climate change, fair? Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess I'd like to address that because I, uh, what I am very proud of in newspapers is that we do still have an ethical standard in that, you know, this whole idea of fake news and fake this, that, and, and really, can people tell what's, what's real anymore? I mean, uh, I, I actually, <laughs> there was something on Instagram and I was like, oh, that looks so fake. And I said something about it. And man, the backlash I got was sort of surprising. Oh, how can you say it's fake? And, and so I really, I think you just, the old school, like you shoot it like you want to, you don't do, we don't, we're not really, we can sharpen and, you know, color correct a certain degree and darken a little bit, but we're pretty strict about our standards. And I think that's really the, how you should follow having standards that you don't really mess around a lot with anything, changing anything. I mean, in our community, the people have lost their jobs by adding 
I don't know, more whatever, more flames or more smoke or whatever. So um, I like to have a strict standard of ethics because I think that's what you really have to base your photography on, particularly in, with environmental stuff because people are going to come after you and say, oh, that's not real and how this is not true. And so. I would just say that I think I've always thought that the documentary approach of sort of unposed and, and unaltered is a good approach to use for environmental photography because it'll be more believable in the, in the long run. So, I mean, that's sort of the standard that I guess a newspaper would use for everything. But uh, some magazines, when they get to environmental photography, they got, might start thinking about using an art photographer or, or using you know, portraiture or some other type of new technique or something like that. But I've always sort of thought that the, the documentary work was the best way to go for this environmental work. I, I think it very, it, you know, ethically, I think, you know, I, I also subscribe to sort of traditional journalism practices in terms of you don't you don't try to manipulate the scenes. You don't clone things out or add things in or crop the photo in a way that changes the context. You know, sometimes you might crop it a little bit, but it's like to fix a horizon line or something. Um, I, you know, because I'm not working in newspapers, I will work my photos a little more to just tease out the highlights and shadows with a little more detail. But um, I think that then starts to come down to personal preference and, um, not changing the colors of the scenes or um, adding things in, taking things out, I think is is one of the key important things in my in my mind for these. But it also depends on how you plan to use the photos, where you're going to use them. If you're going to use them in you know newspaper outlets or particular kinds of magazine outlets, or if you're going to go a more you know independent fine art route or something like that, all of those have different things that apply. Yeah, the only thing I would say is that you need to be transparent in your motives and that the world is full of people who want to deceive and are less than candid in what they're trying to do. And if you're talking about images that are addressing climate change, it's probably beneficial for you then to think about how you plan to show change. And if that means, for example, so I worked with uh, for several years with uh, James Balog, who's a photographer in Boulder, uh, on, on a project that was originally commissioned by the Geographic to document the loss of glaciers around the world. And that later became a project called Extreme Ice Survey. Well, the way we were sh able to show change was that then we had to go back either six months or six years later. You, uh, if you're wanting to use photography as a tool to represent and show what climate change is, then you need to figure out a way to do that A-B comparison as much as possible. Okay, next. Uh, Roger? Yes, I, I think the question is, there's photography and there's photojournalism, and I would argue that what we are laboring under, under right now in a world of digital technology is that we're still adhering to principles that limited us by the fact that you put a roll of film in a camera and you took one picture in one frame and that that was supposed to be the inviolate truth. And <laughs> now what we're, in, what we're now dealing with, and I would argue that in a world uh, where we're dealing with large-scale epic global phenomenon, that are profoundly impacting the future of the, the, the human civilization. That, for example, I, I do images that are multiple image panoramas that allow me as uh, one who generates image the ability to present uh, what the world looks like in a scale that I could never represent through a single image and that there's an epic scale and power to those images. Am I claiming it's journalism? I'm not claiming it's journalism, but I am saying that this is what I see in the world, and I'm, and I'm also being quite candid about how I do it. Oh, yeah. oh, sorry. We were covering the X Games, and one of the photographers did, a, I think, a 15 or 20 uh, sequence of a snowmobile doing a, a you know, a loop, and, and it ran in the paper, and it looked great. But we said it's a, you know, stitching yeah. together, but it really showed what it's like to do that loop uh, rather than just a still image would. So. Okay, last question. Sorry, she was going to say something. Um, yeah, okay, we can move on to the next Mar question. Morgan, go ahead. Okay, well, 
I, I was just going to say, I look at that picture, Roger, as almost like less a photograph and more like lo-fi digital or data visualization. Uh, because that was really the only way that I could think of to show the scale of of a of a cleaned up grow. Because standing there looking at it, no matter what time of day you'd be at, it wouldn't look like anything to you. You could see the divots if you were there in person, but this was this is actual data, and I'm not I'm not looking to hoodwink anyone. So that was what. Uh, that was over 3,000 plants in one section of uh, oh. forest there. Did you carry all those lights into the woods? Yeah, I had two assistants, um, a biologist, a forest service biologist, and a friend of mine. And we. I, I thought maybe it was a multi-image and you moved it. Nope. No, we set them up before uh, the sun went down and then took a bunch of pictures. Okay, last question to Professor Michael Cote. So the question is, for the record, is on funding. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so that's definitely something I, I struggled with because it'd be great if I could do these stories and the journalism world supported me to do that financially, but that's just not the reality of the situation. So I I have followed uh, the potential avenues to keep reporting on this, and uh, that has meant forming relationships. Uh, I usually form relationships with researchers, which for me, I, I feel very comfortable with. And then I, I put it out there, it, it's no secret who my relationships are with. I'm very transparent about it. I'm pretty transparent about my motivations, and I leave it up to the publications to decide whether they want to use those images at all. Um, and so far, I haven't had an issue with it. Um, I, you know, I haven't run the story in like Washington Post or the New York Times. I haven't approached either of them about it. Um, but into the editorial world and magazine world, everyone has been fine with it, and um, and they can see the integrity and quality still of the work. Um, so I'm not out there acting like a public information officer for the organization that I've partnered with. And in fact, at National Geographic, a lot of their grants, um, in my experience, it's not uncommon for a scientist and a, a documentarian to kind of team up sometimes on grants and be kind of known for working together. So I think the transparency and motivation is key. So we could run a whole other seminar on how the business model of photography today and how uh, in many ways in journalism it's collapsed but we can do that next year so <laughs> anyway thank you all for being here appreciate it a lot <laughs>